pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We were in Genesis. This is actually, you know, there's several places in Genesis I really love to visit. This is one of them. I've taught on this a number of times. If you did the Sovereignty of God series, either on your own, or I think at one point we did it here on a Sunday school morning, then you may remember what we're going to study, at least in part, because we covered in that series a part of this same chapter, chapter 18 and chapter 19 to follow, for reasons that are a little different than the ones I'll pursue today. But this part of Genesis is just so absolutely fascinating and at the same time so incredibly relevant to our own lives as Christians, how we follow the Lord, how we appeal to Him, how we see our relationship with Him. So let's set the scene. Let's go back, if we can, to where we left off in this chapter and and try to remind ourselves of what we were watching occur. We left off at about chapter 18, verse 21. And at that point, we saw Abraham... And the Lord standing on a hillside overlooking the valley of Arabah, which is right below south of the Dead Sea. And what they saw 25 miles or so to the southeast from where they stand was the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah occupying this fertile valley, this fertile plain fed by the Dead Sea. And as we learned last time we taught this chapter, these cities were renowned in their day, much as they still are today, for their utter sinfulness. They were the most depraved places on earth in their day, which is saying something. So evil were these towns, in fact, that the Lord now has come into this moment with Abraham and has said that he now is going to make an example of these cities if, in fact, their sin is as bad as he has heard. Moments earlier, he had dispatched those two angels that were there with him, visiting with Abraham, and he had given them the command to go into the cities, investigate the reports of the great wickedness, and then let him know if those reports were true. And if they were, the Lord then, it's implied, was going to take action against what he is hearing about in these cities. Now, this plan was announced by the Lord before Abraham, and we noted in our last teaching that the Lord is already certain that these cities have sinned. There is no doubt in the Lord's mind concerning what's going on in these cities. And therefore, his angels were not visiting these cities merely to confirm the reports. They were traveling with a different purpose entirely, and it will become more evident later in the story. And likewise, when the Lord spoke to Abraham and said to him, this is my plan, we know that he was revealing his intentions to Abraham because he wanted to show Abraham what happens in the next part of this encounter. What happens and more importantly, why it's happening. So that's the backdrop. They're standing there alone, quietly at first, contemplating what is about to happen to these two cities as Abraham watches these two angels disappear into the valley. And what we'll begin reading now in verse 22 is probably the most fascinating exchange between any man and God in the Bible. Verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? As it begins, you find the Lord there standing with Abraham. Now, it's clear from the very fact that the Lord has remained here, lingering in a sense, 
in Abraham's presence, that it's intended to allow for, maybe even invite, this very conversation. It's even remarkable that he came at all. Now that the angels have departed, the Lord just seems to wait. He has said already that he is determined to show Abraham what he will do. And now comes the very conversation that Abraham was expected to have with the Lord. The very reason the Lord has even appeared at all was for this moment, for this conversation. Now notice what the Lord does, though, initially in verse 23. The answer is nothing. He waits. He just stands there. I find it fascinating that though this is the whole point, this conversation now is the whole point of what the Lord has tried to accomplish. He doesn't begin it. He doesn't say something like, for example, Abraham, do you have anything to say? Right? Or or, what do you think of what I just said, Abraham? He doesn't do any of the things that I think we would naturally expect if we understand that this conversation was something God wanted to see happen. Rather than do that, he purposely waits. Look what he's done to set up this moment. He revealed himself. And I don't just mean in the strict sense that he physically appeared before Abraham. That's important, uh, obviously, but it's not the extent of a revelation. He revealed himself in the more important sense that he revealed his work. He explained something to Abraham concerning his purposes and what he intended to accomplish. And in that very revelation came an invitation. I mean, think about it from God's point of view. Should he desire to step into one of our lives and very purposefully, very clearly reveal himself and his work, it always begs the same question. What are we to do with it? It wasn't revealed for his sake. It was revealed for our sake. So the question then falls on us. What do we do with what we've just been given by God? And that's what he's done here. It now falls to Abraham to respond and join in this work. Now, what choices did Abraham have? Well, one obvious one is he could have chosen to just stand there silently, waiting for the Lord to do something. And if he had done that, he'd been standing on the sidelines. Like a player who's not in the game, watching the coach direct the field, but not really participating in any meaningful way. But we know God wants Abraham to get involved in the work that he has revealed to Abraham. So how could Abraham have responded? If he understood the circumstances, what response options are in front of him? I mean, you don't expect Abraham, for example, to run down the hill after the angels and help the angels. There's no real need for that. He doesn't have to go down and verify what everyone already knows. And he's certainly not going to be the one to raise his hand in judgment against the city. That's going to be a supernatural result, not something that men will carry out the only thing he can do at this point is make an appeal before God the Lord announced he was preparing to bring judgment against the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah if the angels found the depravity there that we all know is waiting and Abraham knows as well that these cities are depraved after all the news of their depravity has reached to heaven so we can certainly expect that it made the 25 mile trek up the hill to Abraham's tent right He knows these three cities are going to be found guilty of the sin that they have been charged with. And then he makes the obvious and the correct conclusion that the cities are about to be destroyed as a result. Now, this is all going through his head in an instant, and he knows this. So how could Abraham have responded? Earlier, if you may remember, these cities came under the attack of a powerful ruling authority. The kings of the north, led by Chedorlaomer. They come into town to judge these cities because they were the rightful authorities over these vassals 
but the cities had rebelled against that authority. And the cities, as a result of their rebellion against a higher authority, were laid waste by that authority when those kings rode into town and took away the city. And when that judgment came against those cities, what did the king of the north do? He took everyone in the city and removed them along with the possessions of the city, and he was prepared to take them back to who knows what fate in the north. Even Abraham's own relative, Lot, and his family was caught up in that, if you remember. What did Abraham do in response to that? In response to that calamity, Abraham intervened in a way that saved the citizens of that city and their king, for that matter, from this judgment. But why did he intervene? Back in that earlier place in Genesis, we saw Abraham step in, intervening to save the city from its judgment at the hands of a king that they rebelled from, but only because of Lot. Now again, what do we have? The same cities facing a similar judgment from a higher authority because of their rebellion. In this case, of course, from the ultimate authority and the rebellion is their sin. Now, there is no force or king greater than the Lord. And therefore, if Abraham is going to effect a rescue again for his nephew again, he can't be expected to assemble his men for battle and ride off to support the city against the, the Lord and his angels. That's clearly not an option this time around. So what's left for him the only choice he has is to appeal to the Lord himself, the one who is about to wage this battle, and ask him to do differently. And as he does so here, Abraham once again becomes the man to intervene and try to save Lot and his family for the sake of Lot. So as Abraham contemplates all of this, the Lord's wrath, the city's depravity, his nephew's fate, and so on, in verse 2, we hear him begin the process by drawing near. That's the way the verse opens. He draws near. What the verse is communicating is essentially prayer. Prayer. It's a petition placed before the Lord and that begins by drawing near to the Lord. Whether the Lord is seated in heaven an infinite distance from us or is standing next to us like he did here with Abraham. Either way, it makes no difference. When we want God's attention and his action, we do exactly what Abraham did. We draw near to him through prayer. We petition him, placing our requests before him. And likewise, whether he's standing here or in heaven, he hears us equally well. Don't put any importance on the distance physically. Think of it strictly as men petitioning their Lord. And you have the right context. Abraham here begins to speak with the Lord in the form of questions. And he starts by asking the Lord if he will indeed, the word in Hebrew can be translated also, if he will also sweep away the righteous with the wicked. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah are undoubtedly filled with the unrighteous. There's no doubt about that. And as a result, they are deserving of God's judgment. In this case, the judgment we're talking about here is an earthly kind. The destruction of the city, specifically. The loss of their earthly lives as a result of that destruction. But then again, we know that at the moment that that occurs, then they will also be ushered into a moment of eternal judgment. So those things go hand in hand. But the sweeping manner of destruction, though, the kind of destruction that's going to take place, it's going to stand as an example to mankind of what happens when we rebel against God in our sin. 
The very fact that people in the streets today still know what it means to say Sodom and Gomorrah, even those who've never read a Bible, tells you that when God says something is going to be an example, it will be an example. This is going to be an example. And therefore, knowing that God's actions are going to create a perception among men for the ages concerning not only what happened, but why it happened, Knowing that, Abraham seizes on this opportunity to rescue Lot once again by appealing to God's character and his nature. He asked the Lord to consider the example he is about to set. He asked the question, what kind of perspective is he going to leave people with if he treats the wickedness of the city in the same way as the righteousness? If they have the same fate, if they have the same outcome, what will people say? What will the world say about the Lord when they see this happen? He is asking the Lord not to risk his reputation. Notice in verse 25, Abraham says, shouldn't the judge of the earth be seen as one who deals justly? Shouldn't that be the perception, in other words, of what people see in you? He appeals to the Lord here based on an expectation that the Lord always acts in ways consistent with his character and his nature. And friends, there are teachings among Christians and in the Christian culture that try to get us to think of prayer in unbiblical ways, almost genie-like, where if we say the right words in such and such a way, that obligates God to act in response, like a genie might do our bidding. That's just not biblical. There's no such thing. But if you want something out of the Bible that can be useful as a model or as a picture or an example of how prayer can be effective, here's a good example to take. Abraham used the foundation of effective prayer here, praying for outcomes that are consistent with God's character. We are told by Christ himself in the scriptures to seek his will, not our own will, right? The prayer that many of us were taught to memorize as children, the Our Father. It begins, if you remember, with Jesus asking us to call to mind the holiness of God. We use the word hallowed be thy name, right? That's the the old English version, right? What you're saying is, Lord, your name is holy. But in the style of the East, in the culture from which the scriptures come, the name of someone meant more than just their label. It was their identity. It's like their, their whole character was wrapped up in their name, which is why it was so important not to not to embarrass the family name. But when we say God's name is hallowed or holy, we're describing his very nature, his very being. That's the beginning of prayer. The beginning of prayer is to call upon and remember, call to mind the holiness of God. And in that context, now make your appeals. What would a holy God do? Well, don't ask him to do things that a holy God is not going to do by his very nature and character. Well, you can ask, I guess, but I can tell you what the answer is going to be. He's not going to act against his own nature and character. So Jesus says in our model of prayer, he says, begin by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And what is the next thing he says we should be focused on in our prayer life? He says we should call for the Father's kingdom and for his purposes to be done, not our own. So it's in a sense to say, put yourself in God's perspective and then ask for what you know he wants to see done. That's effective prayer. The problem is it may not be what we want. Well, there you go. Now you begin to see one of the purposes of prayer in how it aligns us to his expectations and not to our own. 
James, by the way, echoes exactly those same commandments or those same instructions, I should say. In his letter in James 4, 2, in talking to that church, he says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's a church that wants a lot of things they shouldn't have, and they're fighting to get it. And then he turns to the comment of prayer and he says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. A group of people wanting the wrong things, trying to force that into their life by their own will, sometimes turning to God, expecting Him to help, but not hearing back because they just ask Him to confirm their wrong motives and their wrong desires. And I bet you they probably all sat around and wondered why God didn't answer their prayers. If we petition the Lord with wrong worldly motives, we should expect Him to refuse those requests because they're inconsistent with His character and His nature. What He wants instead is for us to see Him at work, follow Him and His plan, and echo those desires in our prayer life. Moses, by the way, made exactly the same choice in the way he petitioned God in a very well-known moment in the desert. Let me just read you the short verses out of Numbers 14 in which Moses makes a very similar kind of petition. Notice, though, for our sake this morning, how much what Moses does mirrors what you see Abraham doing in his petition. Numbers 14.11. You may know the background here. The nation of Israel had, for the tenth time, tested the Lord and showed no faith in his word. And now the Lord is ready to put an end to the nation of Israel. And so the Lord says to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. That's quite an offer, isn't it? If you're Moses, you might hear that and say, that sounds pretty cool. No more Father Abraham, it'll be Father Moses. A lesser man could have heard those words and his pride could have just swelled up in the moment, couldn't he? Look what Moses says. In verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people... As one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, he says, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. God gave Moses the opportunity here to become the father of a new nation. And while that possibility might have appealed to his pride, this is God testing Moses for what Moses might do in a case like this. And what does Moses do in response? He appealed to God's character and to his name and to his reputation among the nations. And so the Lord 
response. If we're going to learn anything in this moment as we pass by and study this prayer time that Abraham has with the Lord, don't miss the fact that in our own prayer life and the way we orchestrate our prayer, the way we think about the petitions we lay before the Lord, that if our focus is so self-centered that we forget to ask the obvious question, to what effect will this have on your glory and your name, on your purposes, on your kingdom, if we miss that step, it's not that those requests aren't valid or that God doesn't hear them or even that He won't answer them affirmatively. But more importantly, it's a sign of a shallow prayer life. One that will never grow us beyond the trivial everyday needs that we all share. Those needs aren't illegitimate. They're just a means to a greater end. And the greater end is that we would pray in such a way that God would use our prayer to affect great things for the kingdom. Even as he provides the basic needs he knows we already have. So what did Abraham pray? Well, his specific prayer is that if 50 righteous exist in this city, that the Lord would then spare the city for the sake of his own name, so that others would understand that he is not indiscriminate in applying his judgment. Now, you can see the wheels turning in Abraham's mind, can't you? He wants to save Lot. That's his goal. His goal is to save Lot and Lot's family. But for some reason, he doesn't ask for that. Notice, he doesn't ask, Lord, save Lot. Go down there, do what you're going to have to do. Just save Lot, please. That would have been exactly what he wanted. But he doesn't say, save Lot's family. Instead, he asks for the entire city to be saved if 50 righteous are found in the city. In verse 26, look what the Lord says. The Lord says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, well, then I will spare the whole place on their account. So actually, God says yes to the prayer. Abraham places before him a petition based on his character and his nature, and God's response is, that is what I will do. God said yes to something very specific. What was the problem, though? The problem was he asked for the wrong thing. In the sense of what he really wanted, it's the wrong request. He asked for something to get something instead of just going directly to the need. And there's another opportunity for us to learn a little better about how to pray ourselves. If we pray, be specific down to the exact thing we think is right. Because here's one of the challenges we face if we don't do that. The problem is we may fool ourselves. In not being specific, we may take the wrong thing, but dress it up in a way that makes it sound legitimate to ourselves. If we were to be more transparent and specific, we might find ourselves stopping in mid-request because as we hear ourselves, we say, wait a minute, God's not going to honor that. That's not a very loving thing to want or that's not the right thing I should seek. The classic example for someone in a role of pastoral ministry is to start praying for results in ministry that seem very godly. But as I break that down in my heart, I come to realize, really, Steve, you're just asking for that because it'll make you feel better. It'll make you feel more successful. It'll make you feel better about what you're doing. But is it really glorifying to God necessarily? And I'll retreat and I'll say, no, God, that's not what I want you to do. I just want you to do what's right. But at first it sounded very holy to pray for this big change or this big outcome. Be specific. Go to the detail of what you're looking for and test that in your heart against whether that is truly what God would want. And he'll tell you. 
That's exactly what the Lord wanted to see out of Abraham, by the way. A prayer that would petition the Lord to move in ways that are consistent with his character. And by this petition, what has Abraham just done for himself? He has aligned himself with God's work. He has aligned himself with the principle that says we spare the righteous. We also condemn the wicked. God does that work, but we align ourselves with it in our prayer life. And Abraham has done that here. But you remember the story I gave two weeks ago about the father who had the young son and the father was going to go work in the garage and was inviting that son to join him in the work. Even though the father didn't need his help, it was really more about working with the son. And so he offered that invitation. And we know the father wants the son to work with him, but we also know that the father expects the son will be clumsy and unfamiliar with details of the process, right? He'll sometimes grab the wrong tool and, and other times he'll tighten the nut instead of loosening it because he didn't know which way to turn it half the time. As those things occur in the process, what's the father likely to do? You hope he's going to smile, patiently let the son struggle for those few moments, let the son figure it out, hopefully, maybe guide a little along the way, but, but basically give time for this process to do its work in the way it schools that child, right? Well, look what the Lord's doing here as well. We know that the prayer that Abraham spoke is not exactly the right one, not if his goal is to save Lot and his family. But the Lord doesn't step in at this point and, and say, you know, that's a crummy prayer, Abraham, for crying out loud. Couldn't you have done better than that? Why don't you take a second shot at it? Come on, tell me what you really want. No, no, he doesn't do any of that. He simply waits. Can you see the wheels in Abraham's head? Almost as he spoke the words and he got the agreement, something in his head clicked and he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I asked for 50, but what if there aren't 50? What if there aren't 50 righteous people in Sodom? And knowing the depravity of the city, it's entirely likely that he's not going to find 50 in that city, right? So Abraham immediately comes to the conclusion, I may not have succeeded in getting what I want, even though he just said yes. So he wonders, I wonder if I can get the Lord to agree to a change in the terms. He said yes, maybe he'll say yes again. And thus, we enter now the most remarkable example of bargaining with God that you'll find in the Bible. Look at verse 27. Abraham replied. He says, now, behold, I, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and, and shall I speak? Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. And Abraham returned to his place. I love this. It's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you to see this going on. Abraham here draws near for a second time, an extended time, 
I find it so fascinating that the Lord is still standing and listening throughout this exchange. I mean, we just take that for granted, maybe. But think about it. Why would he not disappear at any moment in this chain? He just stands there. He just stays there. He invited Abraham into this exchange, it would seem, and now he seems to be encouraging it just by his very presence, by letting it play out. It's clear, as we see what Abraham says, though, that once he had set this pattern for his petition, that he must have felt some obligation to stick to it. You know, he had started the deal in the form of 50 for the city, and now that he was in this pattern, he didn't feel like just breaking it and saying, I tell you what, just save Lot, forget the 50. He feels bound by it now, in a way. He feels like he needs to improve his odds. And so he goes down in increments, right? I love this, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. The readers, though, in this story, and Moses does such a great job of relating this, the readers know what Abraham is trying to get. We know he's trying to save Lot. We understand why he's cutting the numbers. Because he doesn't want to take a chance that Lot would get destroyed because he picked too high a number. It's just so logical. Now, what I'm struck by, I hope you are as well, is Abraham's persistence and his boldness here in what he does before the Lord. Now, he adds these little phrases to say, I'm just dust, I'm just ashes, and then I'm sorry I'm bothering you, and this will be the last time, I promise. And You know, as I read the text, I don't think he, he needed to do that. I, I think he needed to be humble in his heart, and that's why God's even put him in this position. The, and the words reflect that. But the words aren't appeasing God. I don't want us to get the impression that somehow we have to do this pattern if we're going to have God's audience. The Bible is very clear. He hears the prayers of his children. And he doesn't need us to go through some kind of false humility, if that were the case, in order to gain his audience. But what God is letting Abraham do here is work out in his mind, in his heart, what God is willing to do for his sake. And with each turn of the wheel, 50, 45, 40, 30... God's answer is always the same. Always the same. With never the hint here of, I'm getting tired of this. Okay, one more time, and then we're all, you know, there's none of that. In fact, better men than I have observed that Abraham stopped asking before God stopped agreeing. Could he have gone to five? Could he have gone to one? There's no reason to think not. It's a good reminder of the fact that sometimes. We sell short how much God will listen and how much he will do. Lot, we know, has been living in this city now for nearly a quarter century. We know him to be a representative of the living God, an ambassador for the Lord, living among the reprobate. Surely, surely, in all those 25 or so years, Lot has managed to rescue a few along the way. Surely there's... 10 or 20 or 30 in this city who have come to know the way of the Lord because of Lot's influence, right? I mean, what about his friends? What about his business associates? What about his neighbors? What about his wife and children and their future husbands, at least? What does it say about the righteousness here of Lot that Abraham felt the need to bargain so low? Abraham here seems to know instinctively that Lot has not been very persuasive in those 25 years. That's the only explanation we would have for why he worked so hard to bargain down to such a low number. Now, watching Abraham bargain in this way, there's several lessons we leave with this morning concerning the prayer and concerning Lot's lack of success in witnessing. First, 
When we pray, we pray specifically. Abraham wanted Lot and his family to be saved, but what he asked for was the city to be spared, which really wasn't what he wanted. And was sparing the city of Sodom consistent with God's character and nature, given how depraved that city really was? 1 John 5.14, he says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. As Jesus said, the Father knows what we need before we ask, so be specific. Secondly, pray boldly in connection with praying specifically. Approach the Lord without fear. Expect to see your boldness rewarded in some fashion, whether a positive answer or not, that you won't be rebuked. Appeal to God's character. Don't be afraid to ask and to ask again. Be persistent. Don't give up on God. Finally, we learn something about Lot. We know he's a righteous man. The New Testament confirms that, which means he was a man of faith in God's word. But we also see and we'll see more later in chapter 19 that he led a sorry life of faith. Lot exists in the Bible, I believe, for one reason more than any other. To give proof, to give example that a life of faith can turn out very badly. That we can live in a worldly way, those saved by faith. He has consistently chosen the world over living a life for the Lord. He separated, if you remember, from Abraham by going down into this valley, attracted by its well-watered look and the attraction of the world that lived there and the city that was there. He's now moved from outside of the city. He forsake the tent life that Abraham has made so prominent as a testimony that he doesn't call this world his home. He forsook that and he went into the city, living in the city of Sodom. That's what led him to be caught up in all the troubles of that city. Many believers, by the way, will follow in his footsteps and still do for that matter today. There is one group that makes no excuses for their choice. They actually prefer the world's approval. They want to gain a name for themselves. They believe in the world's economy of seeking for self-gratification and seeking for self-glory and earning the big dollars and climbing the ladders and doing all those things, and they make no apologies for it. And they believe it as a Christian. They can find a way to fit that into their faith. And I'm not saying that business success is bad. I have a business career. I'm not saying that wealth is bad. The Bible makes clear it's not the problem. It's the love for it that is the problem. What I am saying, though, is that when the pursuit of those things becomes greater in our heart than the pursuit for God and his word and his kingdom, then we're in trouble. And that's the case of Lot, in my opinion. He traded what the Lord would offer in eternity for what the world would offer here and now. Now, there is another camp, though, of believers, I think, who are making the mistake of Lot, but they aren't doing it in the same kind of overt manner. These are believers who think themselves wiser than Lot. They choose to unite themselves with the world, but do it under the guise of a missionary call. To be a missionary of sorts into that world. For example, a marriage to an unbeliever is an opportunity to convert that person. A business partnership with an unbeliever is an opportunity to help that person come to know the Lord. A long-standing fellowship in an unbiblical church is an opportunity to help that church gain proper doctrine. Or a friendship with a worldly person is an opportunity to bring that friend to the Lord. 
and they tell themselves that they can be this influence of faith and godliness. And that is true so long as that is truly God's call on their life. And they know that without a doubt. If so, follow that call and be prepared for the burdens it will bring. But if God is not behind that call, then beware. Lot himself may have told similar lies to himself. He may have told himself as he moved into Sodom that he could do more to help them inside the city than he could by sitting outside the city. Later, we'll see him sitting in the gate, which is a way of saying he was in the leadership, the governance of that city. And he probably told himself that was a way in which he could influence the city as well. But he was simply making excuses, I would argue. The reality is different. The Bible tells us clearly that we do our best work for God when we stand apart from the world. Jesus told us to be salt and light. But then he asked, what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? Yeah, we're supposed to reach out to the world. I would be the first to tell us that and to bring them the good news in the process. But we will be most effective in bringing that message when it comes from a source that is as distinctive as the message itself. We can't expect the world to take interest in our message when the messenger lives a life that's no different from them. They're going to ask the obvious question. What do you have that's any different? You don't look any different. Some might argue that you have to identify with the person or with the group that you're trying to reach. And that's true as well. And there are good ways you can do that identification. You can learn their language. You can learn their customs. You can move into their country and their neighborhoods. That's all fine. But you can't compromise in such a way that you leave behind the distinctiveness that our faith in the gospel is supposed to present. You can't be mistaken for one of those that you're trying to help. But as we look at Lot living in this city of Sodom now for 25 years, I dare say we would have had a hard time picking him out from the rest in that city. And because he chose to identify himself so closely with that city, he paid a dear price, which we'll see again next week when the angels come calling, his family particularly. We cannot make the world holy by our association with it. But they can make us worldly. Remember Paul's words as we close in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He said, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Of what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that we will see in Abraham's example ways in which we can speak to you more clearly, more boldly, and with a greater thought and concern for what is your will and what is consistent with your character and nature. Help us not to take what we've learned and use it as excuse not to pray, but rather, Father, help us to see the opportunities that lay before us as you stand near us, revealing your work, inviting us into it, and then waiting for us, Father, to respond. Let us respond first and foremost by seeking to do your will and calling it what it is in our prayer life. And then, Father, as well, when we see the man Lot and continue to see more of him next week, I pray that what we learn is that worldliness, Father, is a danger. We are in the world, but not of it. And we are designed by your 
glory and by the Spirit working in us, Father, to be a representative, an ambassador. But like an ambassador in the world sense, Father, we cannot travel to another country and then live as if we were one of them and still be seen as an ambassador. Help us to stand out in the right ways, not in pride, not in judgment, but in humility and with a grace, Father, that invites others to know the truth. Use us in that way. And send us away from here, Father, ready to do your work. Bring us back next week. Include others if it be according to your will. And grow us up, Father, in the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.